Welcome to another episode of The Sebastian Show. This week we have on Pace Morby, the creative finance guy who is just killing it in life, personal and business. We go a little bit deep into some of his personal struggles and early life experiences. thought it was a really powerful story and again a reminder that it's not where we start but where we're going and so many of us believe that those who are successful must have had it easier, must have had it better. And I think if you listen to the story, you're going to see that is just simply not the case. He made a point of saying on a few occasions, he's never shared some of this information. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. Check it out. So Pace Morby, excited to have you. Thank you for uh, joining us. Big fan. If you guys haven't seen his episode with Ryan Pineda a couple months back, it's so absolutely good. Fell in love with your content right then and there. I told Ryan to connect us to together and here we are in your studios right here in Anaheim, California. Awesome for um, inviting us down here. Thank you. Of course. And it, you know, we were just talking as we were getting going here. Um, I became a fan of your work after getting to hear your story. And that's for me, always the thing is like, I, I tell my guys, I'm always looking for the failure that led to the success, the breaking yeah. point, breaking point that becomes the making point. And, and you say that pretty boldly in a lot of your content and, and on your website it talks about like you're in bankruptcy, hundred thousand, hundred thousand bad decision that led into a million dollar bankruptcy with one of the companies Oh yeah, uh, that really, kind of changed everything for you. But I want to start a little bit further back and get some things out of the way. One of the things that uh, kind of a prevailing thing we're hearing in our society more and more is that successful people just had it easier. And my experience is, and I was just telling my team this this morning, is there are always exceptions, but successful people didn't have different problems. They had different solutions, right? And, and we know statistically 80% of millionaires in the United States are self-made. Now we could argue what self-made means, and I, I don't deny that there are certain privileges, especially if you live in the United States. But tell us a little bit about your story coming up. Who were your examples? What kind of life did you live? What kind of means did you have? You know, I had a family of 12 kids. 12. So you were a sibling of 12? Sibling of 12, third in line. Wow. My mom and dad are still together to this day. So in a lot of ways, you could Incredible. say I did have a leg up. I had a loving parent that yeah. loved me and showed me the most important thing of all time, which is hard work and perseverance. And uh, my parents would wake us up at five o'clock in the morning and we would read Bible verses together as a community, right? Our 14 person household with dogs and all these things. So you imagine my dad, I mean, trying to support two kids alone is yeah. challenging. My dad was supporting 12 kids. So he was working two jobs, got a master's degree, did all the things, went through school. My dad would, you know, go to, to work in the day. And then at nighttime, my dad would be a contractor nighttime and weekends. And so I learned when I wanted to make money or I wanted to take a girl on a date, I'd say, Hey dad, can I, you know, do something for you at one of your job sites? That's how I earned my money. And so my dad would put me to work. He'd pay me $20 all day long to tape off baseboards and brush <laughs> baseboards, 20 bucks. Right. And when I got older and I look back, I'm like, my dad was paying me like a dollar an hour, right. Or like a dollar 50 an hour. So I, I had, I guess in a lot of ways, a leg up, I had parents that loved me yeah. and my parents taught us how to work hard. And more importantly, how to love working. I've never felt like I have to work or I need to work or I have to convince myself to be motivated to work. I wake up in the morning looking forward to a challenge and I think my parents gave that to me. But financially, we were always bouncing from house to house. Yep. We could never find a house large enough and uh, the means were never there. You know, when I started driving, didn't have the money. My parents couldn't afford, obviously, to buy me a car. So I was bagging groceries yep. at Smith's Grocery Store and I saved up 500 bucks, bought a Ford Taurus. Oh, yeah. And of course, <laughs> I bought this Ford Taurus, $500. Yeah. 
But then I put $600 into the sound system. So I had an $1,100 Priorities. That makes sense. Priorities. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, that was my childhood growing up, working hard. My parents made me go to scouts. My parents said I cannot get my driver's license or date girls until I got my Eagle Scout. You were an Eagle Scout. I was an Eagle okay. Scout, yeah. So my parents were very good about those things and giving me that, you know, probably the most important leg up, which is love and get, teaching me commitment. And then I went on a mission for my church. I went to Korea, learned how to speak Korean. I baptized people and taught people about, um, you know. So you were in a, a Mormon church Mormon then? church, okay. yeah. Yep. And came home, did, did all of those things, and immediately came home and started working my guts out. Yep. And got into construction. Why? Because my dad was a contractor. Yep. And that's what I got into. And ultimately, um, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you guys a good example. This is a story I've actually never said ever out loud because for a while it was embarrassing to me, but now I realize that sometimes, sometimes people need to hear these stories. When I was on my mission, I had saved up $30,000 myself from bagging groceries to go on my mission for myself. So I sacrificed from age 19 to age 21, girls, college, music, movies, and any, everything that kids go through from 19 to 21, those amazing years of freedom. Like I have nothing to worry about. No kids, no spouse. I don't have to worry about college. Nobody expects anything of me from 19 to 21. I go and volunteer two years of my life and I pay my way to go do it. 30,000 bucks. You saved $30,000 in two years. Yeah. Bagging, ba bagging groceries. groceries. And my friends, wow. you know, my friends lived, you know, my friends in high school, they had parents who would give them debit cards and cell phones and vehicles. So, and they said, they told their kids, they're your only job. Your only job is to get good grades and play sports. That's your only job. And my That's parents nice. were like, <laughs> we have nothing for you. You want to go on a date with a girl? You're, you're painting the fascia. You want to go take somebody to the prom? You're going to figure out how to mow the neighbor's lawn. And I would just figure out how to go and, and make money. And it wasn't until I was later in life that I realized how powerful that really was. But what happened is when I went on my mission, my dad started a business and that business faltered and failed because it was in the 2008 crash. And right, right around that, that time. And my dad reaches out to me. I'm in Korea. I'm not allowed to communicate with my parents for two years outside of Mother's Day and Christmas. Right. Yep. Okay. Think about that. I can't yep. communicate with anybody, nobody from the outside world. And so my dad sends me an email and he says, hey, I need to borrow some of the money that's in your account. Mm -hmm. I go, no problem. And I get a phone call from the president of the church, basically was, you know, managing me over in Korea. And he said, hey, we're trying to process your payment for your apartment and for your this and your accounts overdrawn or something's happened. Can you call your bank? My dad doesn't answer. I, I'm on the phone trying to call oh everybody. God. Find out my dad just drained my whole entire account. And I had no money to stay in Korea. And so what I did is I go, I'm going to call a handful of people and I'm going to raise money. And I raised money as a 19-year-old kid in Korea back 21 years ago, whatever that was. And I figured out how to crowdsource $30,000 because I had to. And it was a commitment I made to myself. And I promised these people, I said, when I get home, I promise you I will pay you the $30,000 back with interest. And so there was somebody that helped me pay for it. And I got home, amazing mission, all the hardest things you can imagine, sleeping on the floor, serving people in rice patties, everything you can imagine serving people in Korea for two years. And I got home and I went and worked as somebody that would paint garage floors on weekends to make that $30,000. And I would pay, I paid this guy Rick back for doing this. And so my dad, you know, he had a hard time. He was trying to support a big, big family. And so I never faltered my, I never faulted my dad for this. 
And then later, I go and work for my dad on a night shift. And my dad convinced me because he knew, oh, my son has good credit. My son has this. My dad convinced me. I've never said this publicly anywhere. My dad convinced me to use my credit and my everything as a brand new 21-year-old just getting home to help him build this business. This business, after basically two and a half years, I had bought my first house. This is back when you could get a loan by fogging a mirror. Right. I bought my first, you know, you remember those days. The good old days. The good old days. <laughs> so I sold my house. I made $180,000, gave it all to my dad. His company falls apart. My dad goes to prison. I've never said this ever. I've never outwardly told anybody that my dad went to prison. My dad went to prison and I had to take, as a 22, 23-year-old kid, I had to take care of my mom and seven siblings that were still living in their house. And I was taking care of my wife and my house and everything else. And I just, it was a sense of duty, a sense of responsibility. My dad, who has a sibling older than me and another sibling older than me, knew he couldn't rely on those siblings to do this thing. So my dad came and asked me. After my dad basically took $300,000 from me and destroyed my credit and put me in a horrible situation, I took care of my mom and those seven siblings for the duration of my, my father's um, prison time. And my, what happened to my father is he was running a payroll company and because of the crash and everything that was happening, he had a lot of clients that didn't pay him. Therefore, he couldn't pay his taxes. So yep. he went to prison for basically for tax evasion. Everything was in my name. Everything was in my name. And it was a really challenging time. And I don't think I ever faltered because I just loved to work. And so I just woke up every day and I just outlasted my problems. I, that's it. I just outlasted my problems and I figured it out. Day, working in the daytime at GoDaddy, working at nighttime, painting garage floors, doing everything I could. And even in the face of this is my mom and the seven siblings that are living in the house sitting there going, hey, my mom's texting me and she's saying, hey, we need money for medication. We need this. I'm 22, 23 years old supporting a family that's not, it is my family but I'm not her husband. Right. It's not my financial responsibility right. to do that. So when people say, oh, you know, you grew up with means and you grew up with this and your, your father and your parents helped you. My dad put me in $3 million of debt at 23 years old. And my dad not only put me in $3 million of debt, my dad put me in a situation where I couldn't get, get a credit card. I couldn't leverage anything because he destroyed my name. He put my name as the, um, the, the agent on all of his LLCs that ended up just getting destroyed. Not only all of that, but I still had to take care, take care of my mom and grin and bear it because you imagine my mom losing her, you know, they're still together. My dad got out of prison 10, 15 years ago and he was only in for like 20 months. It wasn't like he killed somebody. It was a tax situation. Yep. And he got out and I still had to, I found my dad, dad a job. I got more money in his pocket. My dad to this day even up until four months ago, my dad came to my house pretending like he was coming to see my, my children. What was he really doing? Coming to ask for money. And my dad comes over, he sends me a text and he says, hey, can I come over and visit Corbin on Monday? And I'm like, I look at my wife and I go, I'm going to go downstairs. Can you just kind of talk to my dad so I don't have to? Because I know when my dad's in my physical proximity, he's going to figure out how to manipulate my heart and give me that sense of duty that it's my responsibility to take care of his problems. And so I, you know, four months ago, my dad comes over. Hey, how's it going? How's it going? I go, hey, I got a meeting. And as I'm leaving to get out of the situation, my dad says, I need $10,000. Jesus. 
I mean, guys, this, this happens. Welcome to the world. I can either bitch and moan about it or I can grin and bear it. Yep. And I've chosen to grin and bear it. And I am grateful. I'm grateful for my father, even though all the things that have happened here, I, my wife and my first wife ends up leaving me. And here's what happens. She ends up leaving me because I'm married. My dad's in prison. I'm taking care of all his bills. I'm now $3 million in debt from a company I did not own. And my wife, you can imagine at that time, a woman at 23, 24 years old that's married to me, because married's freaking Mormons get married young, right? Yep. <laughs> we're trying to get laid, so we get, we get married super young. <laughs> Makes sense. She didn't, do you think she wanted to be in that situation? No. She got married to me because I'm a provider. Yep. And she got married to me and saying, I'm giving my life to you. Your job is to support me. My job is to nurture you and let's go build a kingdom together. And she was watching me just getting pulled every which way, paying everybody else's bills. I mean, it got, it got so bad that even one of my sisters that wasn't even in my mom's house would call me and say, hey, I need medication too. And my husband's not making enough money. It looks like you're paying mom's bills and da, 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 da. I stepped up to the plate and pay those bills. Mm. Do everything I, could, I possibly could to do that. And my wife just comes to me one day and says, I'm done. I'm done. I'm out. I can't build a life with an entrepreneur. Yeah. Greatest blessing. One of the greatest blessings of my life. That woman was not meant to be my queen. And yep. so I meet a new woman. She's now my wife. We've been together 15 years. We are expecting our fourth child here at Christmas in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, so we just it, had our third. A, a, tri a triumph. Yeah. Amazing. Like, it's the best thing in the world. During this time, my brother, his name is Corbin, hangs himself because of all the turmoil going on in my family's life. I'm the only person in my brother's phone. I have to identify the body. I have to pay for the funeral. I have to pay for all of these things, and I have to grin and bear it. I'm 23, 24. I already gave up two years of my life to my, my church. Now I'm dealing with all of this. I meet this new woman, Laura, bless her heart. She comes to me. We, we're together now maybe a year, two years. I propose to her. Two years later, she says, she comes in and she brings the ring and she puts the ring on my desk and she says, hey, since we haven't gotten married since the proposal, I assume you just don't want to get married to me. <laughs> and I'm, I'm okay just living with you. And I go, Laura, do you not know that I have $3 million in debt in my name that my father put there? I can't get married. I got an IRS thing and a this, that, and the other and whatever else. And my wife, bless her heart, she says, if you were the man I kn knew you were, you would have already fixed that. Yeah. <laughs> and so what happens is I go, you're right. I go hire an attorney. His name's Nate Carr. Shout out to Nate Carr, this guy, um, for a year and a half, $50,000 in attorney's fees. He goes and proves that none of the debt and none of the problems that my dad put in my name were my problems. I remember sitting in the IRS's headquarters in Ogden, Utah, and there's news articles and all this stuff online that say that I am the one that caused that company to go down. I was 22 years old. I, like, I wasn't part of how? it. How? Yeah. How? It was because my dad put my name on everything. I'm sitting in the IRS's um, headquarters in Ogden, Utah. And the lady says, okay, we're, we're getting rid of all the charges. We're getting rid of all the things. We're getting $3 million. $3 million. Everything gone. Oh, what a whip. Like Immediately a my credit goes back to this. Immediately my life goes back to this. I go get married. I have a triumph. And I, still to this day, my dad asked me for money and pay this and do this and do that. Do, 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 do. I haven't had not a leg up. I've had a ball and chain on my legs on both of them. And I still have a smile on my face and I still win. I have so many questions. Um, and you named your first 
Firstborn son after your brother? My firstborn daughter after or my son. Daughter. Cor- yeah, Corbin. Corbin. Yeah. Were you're, are you the oldest son? I'm not. I have an older brother, Chance, and he w- did not have the physical capability to do what I do. Understood. He, he, when this was all going on, my brother said, I have my own life, dad. I have my own wife. I have my own kids. You are on your own. And he did not help out while I, the younger son helped out even right. I, six months after my brother kills himself, my dad goes into prison. So all of this was going on divorce, brother hangs himself. I get blamed for a company that I didn't own $3 million in debt. Can't even get a credit card and having to figure out how I have to supply Three families worth of income. What year was this? This is like two thousand six, seven, ten, probably. 10? Yeah, okay. two thousand ten. Okay, somewhere around there. The the dark winter or the the dark night of the soul, as I would describe it. So many successful people have this moment, this yeah. time period. Yeah. This is a particularly. Thank you for sharing that, by the way. Yeah. And, and fuck, um, th- this is the stuff that when you hear that, it's like, well, what's my excuse? Well, What's dude, my story? Because people see you now, and you're wildly successful. You're kicking ass. Uh, you have an incredible brand. You're doing really well, and it's easy to make the assumption. Oh yeah, it's because their life is easy. Yeah, it's hard to say this, and, and I'm listening to. I'm trying to extrapolate, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Do you think your circumstances made you who you are, or were you always that person? And it was like for such a time as this, I was built like you just. Because to me, this sounds like you were an absolute blessing to your family. And I'm sure there's a lot that goes into all this. But, like, were you always that way? Did you become that person? Did you always have the constitution to be like that? No. I mean, it's like... And then the what first, drove you then? Like, like the what first, made you... First time you ever stu- stood on stage. First time you had a camera in your face. I'm sure you had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> you're so nervous, right? The, you're, you are built through adversity. Right. And, um, no, I haven't always been this way. I think... The, the number, and this is, there's two reasons why, and this is, hopefully this doesn't bring me to tears. I don't want to cry in in your office like a little baby, (laughs) but I think there's two reasons why I fought through so hard. Number one, because my parents gave me the tools at an early age to work hard and have duty and sense of community. And my family was my community. And so I looked at that community, my siblings and my mom, who is now, my mom was a stay at home mom. As you can imagine, having 12 kids, there's no way my, my mom could have been anything other. So when she's told that her husband's going to federal prison, how is my mom going to support six children still at home? I immediately, without even questioning Sebastian, I'm like, that's now, now, that's now my responsibility, right? Like My parents gave me that. So better or for worse, whatever my dad put me in, here's, a, here's the thing I look at it, silver lining. The silver lining is I was put in a situation that pressure cooked me that basically turned the coal into diamond that yeah. made me feel pressure that now I have 620 employees that work for my companies. It does not phase me in the slightest because I've been through have I've been through hell. And then, so that's the first thing is my parents gave me the tools to do it. The second thing and why I think that I still, the, the guy that you mentioned at the beginning, I've never filed bankruptcy. I had a client five years ago on my daughter, the day my daughter was born, Corbin, I had a client file bankruptcy on me. And I was putting so much money into his company and he was running basically a Ponzi scheme behind, behind the scenes. I was a contractor just to give some, some uh, context of this. I was a contractor. My biggest clients were open door offer pad Zillow and I was doing a lot of work for them. Mm-hmm. So they would buy a house. I, my crews would fix it up and they'd pay me handsomely for doing that. I had this client, his name was John. John came to me and he says, Hey, I'll give you all the work you can handle. And as long as you float me a little bit, well, I floated him. He'd pay me a hundred. I'd do a hundred thousand of work. He'd pay me 90. 
do $100,000 of work, he'd pay me 105, right? And it just incrementally kind of went up and down, up and down until one day John owed me about half a million dollars in two, the summer of 2018. And this is, by the way, I was already doing real estate. Was this the iBuyer? No, this is not the iBuyer. It was okay. simultaneous, a different client. But that's what that was my business model. Got it. John was not an iBuyer. He was just a fix and flipper in, in Arizona. Yep. And during this time frame, I had already started doing creative finance. I had already been doing real estate rentals. I'd already been doing fix and flips on my own. And when I look back on myself and I say, why did I continue on with the construction company? It was because I didn't believe in myself to go out on my own. I believed in John and open door and offer pad. So I, I divested my risk into their baskets. I took my eggs out of my own basket, put them into their baskets. And I go, I trust you more than I trust myself because things just don't ever work out for me is what I would, I had this victim mentality of like, look what happens to me. Look what happened to me with my dad and this and that. And da, da, da. Well, summer of 2018, John owes me $500,000. I was pouring a lot of my profits into his business. Now I'm in a hole. Yep. And what do you do when you're in a hole and you're, you don't have the resources to get out? You dig the hole deeper, assuming that you're going to come out the other side of the world, right? <laughs> and I'm going to be triumphant on the other side. John comes to me that summer and he says, hey, I know I owe you about five dollars $600,000. If you help me finish these last 25 houses, I will get you paid not just the five hundred grand, but I'll give you an extra $200,000 as a bonus. He, already, he, already, he, he knew I was already hook, line, sinker. So what he did is I had 43 rentals at the time. I sold a bunch of my rentals. I got the cash. I gave it to John to go and, and we went and did the renovations on his houses. The day my daughter was born, letter came in the mail. He's filing bankruptcy on $1.1, $1.2 million. It was another really great thing that happened to me because I was now told to never give somebody else control over my future. Yes. And it was the last day I was a contractor was that day. And I said, why wasn't I just focusing on real estate investing? I had the tools. It was because this whole entire time I was looking for my father's approval. I was looking for it from John. I was looking for it from this person. I was looking for it from my father. And even four months ago, when my father came to my house and asked me for $10,000, I'm still willing to give him the $10,000, Sebastian, because I'm waiting for my dad to look at me in the eye and go, I'm sorry for what I did to you. So I was going to ask you and, and, and you now offered that, but had your father come back to you and reconciled or even acknowledged what he put you through? No, I think he's too embarrassed to do it. I don't think he's a bad guy. I just don't think he has the capacity to do it. And I'm okay with that. And I need to come to terms with it. And there's times where my dad, uh, about five years ago, my dad came to me and he says, hey, can I borrow $1,500? I said, $1,500? And I said, how about this? You owe me about half a million from all, all the <laughs> things that we've done and, you, and the attorney's fees. I had to defend myself because of the bullshit you put in my name. How about this? I'll give you $1,500. Not, he goes, no, no, I want to borrow. I go, I'm giving it to you. And what I will also give you is forgiveness of the other half a million dollars as long as you never ask me for money 100%. again. Yep. That lasted about two years. And then he started coming back to me because he's like, oh, pace is weak. And so I don't know. I mean, maybe there's something wrong with me where I'm weak or if I just, maybe I look at it as the, it's my responsibility for the time being. I look at my mom who bore 12 children who I all love my, I love all my siblings. And I'm like, I don't want to put my mom in that bad situation. So anyway, when people say you had a leg up, I've told you maybe 5% of the bullshit I've had to put, put up with. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I Thank think you for asking. I've never told that story. I've never told anything about my dad going to prison and me having to shoulder the burden of my family 
never had to, I've never talked about that kind of stuff and aired that on the air because what does it matter? But when you ask the question in that way, where somebody's saying, well, yeah, you have, I have half a billion dollars in real estate holdings. I have companies that do well over a hundred million dollars in revenue and I make a lot of money and I have 600 plus employees that work for me that all get a paycheck every other week. And those people on average have four people relying on them. Yep. And those people all combined eat 7,500 meals a day because of the good decisions and the hard work and the perseverance that I put into mm. it. So if you need, if you think that I was born with the ability to do that and that I'm just lucky and I had a silver spoon in my mouth, it was the opposite. I didn't have a silver spoon in my mouth. I had a knife against my throat. Yeah. And I still made it happen. What would you, it sounds like you've forgiven your father. Yeah. And I wasn't planning on talking about this, but there's, there's some things here I want to get into to the degree you're, you're comfortable. I mean, I would love to have my dad call me and say, I'm sorry. Yeah. I would love to have that. And I think that maybe there's some trauma there and I, I probably need, need to get some therapy or something along those lines that air that out. Maybe this is a little bit of that therapy. So I appreciate the time to, get, to let me air it out. But I would, I would love an apology, but I think for the most part, I've forgiven my father. When I hear you, I don't hear a lot of energy behind that, which is good. Like maybe like where it's like still burning you up, uh, which usually is an indication that it's been pretty well processed. You also mentioned a high level of gratitude for those experiences. And no doubt, I think the success you've had now lends itself. That's incredible. Half a billion dollars in property, yeah. 600 employees, $100 million companies. I mean, you're doing quite well for yourself, but... From my position, it would be easy to argue the shitty things you went through is part of what made you who you are. Yes. It was like that it journey. Was a requirement. Yeah. yeah. And and I think I think that is so missed in our society for people who that, that are looking to come up or looking at people who have made it, been successful. And I think success is different to different people, but there's some characteristics that are consistent. But there is this prevailing belief that it's like you got lucky or you had it easy. And my experience has been more often than not, it's quite the opposite. Yeah. It was like, what other choice did I have? And again, here I am hearing another story that's like, well, what other choice did I have? And you had another choice because there are lots of people who would have taken exactly what happened to you and explain it why they're broke, divorced, don't have anything going for them. They're stuck. And they would have been able to share that story. And a number of people would have been like, oh, yeah, bro. No, I totally get it. Life yeah. has been unfair. Yeah, that, I'm, so, I'm so sad that happened to you. Yeah, exactly. And, and validate you and your, and your bitchiness. So what, what do you think the difference is? I don't know. You know, I, it doesn't mean that I didn't have those moments. I remember, 100%. you know, my, my brother had just killed himself. My father had just been admitted to prison. I was going through being blamed or my, my father had a company that had 200 employees that didn't get, didn't get their last paycheck. Which is, can't happen. Can't happen. Right? You can't file bankruptcy on payroll. Right. And so my father, um, you know, my name's on everything. And so the news, there's still a news article out for, on KSL from, I don't even know what year this was, maybe 2007, 2006, some, somewhere in that. Two, two, I got to look back and look at the article. And still, I get people that reference to, the, to this day, 15, 16, 17 years ago on an article that was written about the fact that my name was on the LLC. You were a 22-year-old kid. I was a 22-year-old kid and didn't have the financial or mental capacity to even be able to defend myself, right? But what ended up happening in all of this is I was feeling sorry for myself, as you do, right, as a human being, and you were looking for the lizard in the back of your brain, the, the comfort demon, yep. as I call him. is reptilian looking for, brain. The reptilian brain is looking for comfort. Yep. 
And the comfort that I was, I was looking for, as I said, well, my brother killed himself and he found an, a, a way out. My wife was already hinting at me that, Hey, this isn't probably going to work. I can't work, be with an entrepreneur. Literally the world around me was crumbling down and I'm laying on the floor in this house, basically by myself and light, like the power bill is going to get shut off. Everything's going to shut. It was a horrible situation. But I remember writing a suicide letter to my brother Hudson. Okay. He was my young, he's my younger brother, 13 years younger than me. And I said, Hey, you know what? Corbin might've killed himself and I might've killed, kill, killed myself. I'm writing a suicide letter and I had my whole entire suicide planned out. What I was going to do is I wrote the letter and I was going to drive into so there's a single lane highway in Utah in the middle of a winter storm. I was just going to drive right into a semi truck because I'm like, I have a small enough car, semi truck. I'm going to go <laughs> underneath still it. Still a big fucking chance, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's no possible way that I'm going to hurt the semi truck driver, but I'm going to kill myself and I'll get, I'll get out of this thing. And my mom called me that day. My mom never calls me. I see my mom a lot, but my mom, my mom never ever calls me. And she called me that day and she said, I'm just checking on, checking in on my brown mama's intuition, my mama's intuition. And you know, there is, there's this vibration in the world as I, I know you teach about and you talk about. And I think there was a vibration. My mom felt my molecules from 800 miles away. 100%. And she knew there was trouble with her, her little boy. You know, I'm 23, but she calls me and she says, how's my brown boy? My mom always called me her brown boy. <laughs> I'm the only kid in my family that yeah, has like skin. tan kids yeah. or tan skin. And so she says, how's my brown boy? And she goes, I don't know why I needed to call you, but I just want to check in on you and let you know I love you. And I know you're going through a lot. And I just want to tell you, when you were born, I knew you were going to be somebody that could withstand the world. And my mom almost wanted to call me Atlas. Atlas is the god of holding the, holds the, the world, world up. Holds the wor whole world up. And my mom said, I knew, I don't know why, but I knew you were going to be a boy that was going to be able to hold the whole entire world up. And she said that to me the morning I was going to kill myself. Mm -hmm. So I'm telling you that it doesn't mean I don't have these moments. It doesn't mean that I don't have these moments of weakness, but it's always somebody outside of myself that helps me get through it. It's a friend. It's a mentor. Now at my stage I'm in and your stage, it's the people I hang out with. Community. Community. The people I connect with, the people yep. that I actually get to be in <clears throat> close physical proximity to that really change my life. And so... For anybody that's going through those things, I would, uh, you know, t tell you to take an audit of your five closest friends and say, who's going to pull me out of this? Because I've never pulled myself out of anything. There's always somebody that called me, always somebody that gave me a hug, always somebody that encouraged me in whatever the slightest possible way and just kept me going down the road. And I had to obviously tie my shoes and freaking run down the street. But there were, it was, it was always community that got me through. But it, this is so powerful. I, I, uh, didn't know we were going to go this direction, but I really appreciate you sharing this. That to me, humans are strongest in community. We were built for community. We were not built to be isolated and to be alone as a long-term strategy. And my core values, my kind of operating values are truth, love, freedom, community. And the reason I start with truth, love, and freedom is I don't think you get to healthy community without those first three operating to me, truth and love are, are two sides of the same coin, which produce an atmosphere of freedom that allow for healthy community. But in community, you don't have to be strong all the time. It's just somebody is strong all the time, right? Whoever is strongest in that moment. 
And that's how you take care of each other. Because another operating principle I think a lot of humans uh, live under is this belief that life is supposed to be fair and it's supposed to be easy. And anybody who's living in love and life goes, no, no, it's not fair and it's not easy. And it wasn't really, in, in my opinion, designed to be. I believe we're all here to accomplish a certain task or to, to learn a particular lesson and to contribute in a very specific way. And the conditions we grow up in are literally facilitating that. Yeah. And so I listen to you and I hear your story and I'm thinking, man, there's a whole bunch of different times he could have quit yeah. and how differently this could have been. And now 600 people depend on your leadership. They depend on your good decision to make sure that they have food on the table for their family. And you're impacting, you said 7,500 meals. Was that a day? 7,500 meals are fed every single day from paychecks that we divvy out. Yeah, that's how different that could have been had you made a different decision, how you yeah. laid in victimhood and, and blamed you know, the things that happened to you for the reason why you didn't get up. Yeah, I had a girl in my team. Her name is Alyssa Ritchie. She just had a baby. So shout out to Alyssa. She um, sent a text message in one of our Slack channels the other day. And she said, Pace, thank you for persevering and thinking so, or she said, thank you for dreaming so big that all of our dreams can live inside of yours. Mm. And I was like, that is why I. I have, you ever, have you ever thought about adding Atlas to your name? We're thinking about adding Atlas, uh, having children. Atlas as my next boy's name. Yeah. yeah, he's coming in five weeks, so we, we're we're battling on that. Atlas is my choice just because of all of that. Curious, probably a random question to you, but when is your birthday? Uh, two twenty one, nineteen eighty three. I'm a Pisces, so Pisces. I, my yep. problem, my my addiction as a Pisces is to see other people's problems and fix them. Yep. I'm a water sign, so I see the cracks in everybody else's foundation, and I go, how can I, as a Pisces, fill all of your cracks because I'm a water sign? Yep. And I, that's what happens. John, who filed bankruptcy on me, my dad and his problems, other people's problems. I have had to hire an entire C-suite to protect me just for myself. Know, know thyself. Know your weaknesses. Know, know your my, strengths. I'm not going to fix that weakness. And, and the thing is, some of our greatest strengths become weaknesses, one of my greatest strengths is that I it's want personal. to help and I, I'm generous with the things that I do and people will then come to me and take advantage of me. Hey, I got this thing. Hey, I got this investment. Hey, they, they see I like the other day, um, Jim quick, one of my good buddies. Mm -hmm. uh, do you follow Jim? Yeah, he's great. So good. So he's, you know, he re revised his book and he says, Hey, do you mind helping get the word out? And I go, how about this? I'll just buy a thousand or 2000 books for you. And I'll give them to my community. I love it. Because I believe in your message so strong. He's like, you would spend that kind of money? I go, Jim, what you've given me in my life far exceeds what I'm going to spend financially. So my somebody sees me doing this for my community and they immediately come to me and they go, hey, I've got a thing that I need help pushing. And then another person, I got another thing that needs help pushing. I'm like, oh, I just showed the world that I was willing to do this for this person. Now the wolves are coming out of the woodwork. Mm -hmm. And so luckily I've set up People, I have a family office that now, Smart. if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I've got an idea, go go, go talk to Ryan. Yep. As far as I know, I don't have any money. Yep. And so, um, yeah, I do have those weaknesses, which is sad, but it also is a strength, I think, in a lot of ways. Wait, it, but what you did is built a team around you, and that's a fundamental principle, something that I, I'm constantly teaching. Aces in their places put people around you mm -hmm. who are strong in areas that you are weak. Know yourself, know what you're good at, know what you're not good at. You've got, I mean, look at, I, you know, just, I was giving Molly on your team compliment after compliment. Jenna's awesome. And, and I'm sitting over here looking at your team. I'm like, man, you, you aces in their spaces. That's phenomenal. That should be on a t-shirt <laughs> and you live it. You've got an amazing team. Thank you. I, I do. I'm, I'm blessed for sure.
Well, you um, were you worked your guts out, right? The, the, this team wasn't handed to you by the doctor in the ER when you were born and said, "Hey, here's your team. Here's your skill sets. Here's your this. Here's your here's all the things that you're going to need. Here you go. You had to go and ob obtain this crap through hell." Yep. And I would, you know, maybe you've heard this, but Alex Ramosi said something. I think it was about a year ago. He said, "Imagine we were going to make the strongest human being on planet Earth that could withstand anything." and could make money and could do this and overcome any obstacle in order to make that human being, what would he have to go through? What would he have to go through to become that person? And his, what he says was it probably wouldn't be a very chill life. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my gosh. And when I became friends with, um, uh, Dean Graziosi, I'm sure, you know, Dean Graziosi, I became friends with him. And I think a part of one of the reasons why I've forgiven my father is because of my relationship with Dean community, again, having a buddy, a, a, a brother in arms, so to speak. That's why I was so excited to, be, to come here today, too, is because when I watched you on Ryan Pineda, who's another one of my brothers in arms, I was like, oh, Sebastian's going to be another one of my brothers in arms. This guy has re relationships and experiences that he's aggregated and collected over his lifespan that I can now benefit from and vice versa. And vice versa. That, that's why community exists. Yep. Is because you've lived your life and all the challenges you've gone through actually in a weird way to serve me and my community. And I've done the same thing for you. 100%. And so instead of us looking at each other as competition, we look at each other like, thank God that you went through all the things you went through because I now need some of your help. Yes. I need some of your fortitude. I need yes. some of, of your, your get shit done button. I, ne I need that in my life. But Dean said something to me. You've heard it a hundred times. I had never heard it. He said, Pace, all of those things did not happen to you. They happened for you. Mm. And he goes, right, I want you to write down. He told me to write all these things down. He said, write down everything bad that happened to you. And I want you to tell me what thing you learned from it and how that thing has helped you make money. 100%. And I reverse engineered. And I was like, all of the things that my father put me through and all the problems, even today, somebody you know made a comment about like, oh, I looked you up on your thing and your dad went to prison. And I have no emotion about it because I've learned how to filter the outside people that have the victimhood mentality. And they're always trying to blame things for this, that, and the other. And it all came, it came, comes from other people. I have, not, I have not gotten this information by myself. Somebody else gave it to me. And it was a brother in arms, somebody that's in our community. When you, I thank you for sharing that. I, there's, a, there's a process of, of transcending levels of consciousness. And I can tell where someone is in their journey by how they talk about their journey. And there's, there's really four, potentially a fifth layer, but the first is life is happening to me. Mm. And the people that are in the to me stage of life, they're a victim. Everything oh. is victim. I'm they at the effects of life. hundred percent. Everything they say, <laughs> the t-shirts they wear, the, the stickers they put on their car, the way they greet people. You're just like, you're in phase one. Right. To me. And it's obvious. And they're very hard to reach because they're usually in, enthralled and I'm at the effects of life. So everything is circumstance, everything is outward world, and they're pointing at everything outside of themselves. The next stage is the for me group. And the for me group looks at things like, what can I learn from this? What is my opportunity in this? Life is happening for me. The life, universe, God is trying to teach me something. And that is, it's, it's the first step, but it is by far the biggest step. Just going from to me to for me has a radical change in how you show Have up you in your own life. Have you found where that is, where people get through that? Is it somebody in their community, somebody helps them through? Or is it you just got kicked in the face so many times, you're like, that's not working, I need to change something up? It, it, there's, a few, there's a few kind of leading indicators that somebody set up for that. One of them, though, is they start to look back at the life lessons with gratitude. They start to be able to look back and go... Well, that wouldn't have happened 
had that not happened. I wouldn't have learned that lesson had that not happened. So they're, they're able to start like working backwards, do the math backwards, reverse engineer it and go, well, these things that I thought were going to destroy me ended up helping me. But some people never get there. They, they, that's, so for me, I'm always like, well, what's, why, do make, why does some make that jump? Why do some don't? And there was a, I think there was, it was a 2020, um, 2020, I don't know if 2020 is still around, but it was a, a, a TV show called 2020 and they were interviewing twins and I thought it was really fascinating. Oh my gosh, I can only imagine. Because they, they basically make completely different decisions. Biological twins, grew up together. I believe it was Detroit. Same households, same mom and dad, same religion, same food on the table. Like literally the ingredients were the, all the same. One goes to jail, one's an executive of a Fortune 500 company. Damn. And, I gotta, I gotta watch and when asked, when asked why, they had the same answer. Oh, so the guy who's in jail, what else did you expect? I grew up in a house that was like this. I grew up with a mom that was like this. I grew up with a dad that was like this. What other choice did I have? Guy becomes executive. What other choice did I have? I came from a life like this. I had a mom like this. It was literally the same answer, so good. but they drew different conclusions. Successful people don't have different problems. They have different solutions. Yeah. So it's like, well, what, what is that pivot? And so for those who are curious to me, for me, life is happening by me. When you when you start to become the creator of your life, right? And then co-creator, life is happening through me or with me, mm. right? And that's where you really surrender, what I would describe as surrendered manifestation, where you are surrendering into the flow of life and really, I would say, creating from your higher self, although that sometimes sounds pretty woo-woo to people, but it's, you're I like, think you're people definitely in phase one have a hard time hearing that. Oh yeah, for sure. Phase one's not listening. But yeah. um, there's, you know, there's an old saying, you know, everybody's writing their own story, but very often it's only successful people who are willing to admit it, the by me group, right? And they, they can see it. And it's, it's true. Um, I think I'm, I think I'm between phase three and four, to be honest with you. Yeah. I feel, I feel like I'm in there where I'm starting to realize things are being created in a weird way because of, of hard work I've put in and the teams we've assembled and the vision that I've cast. And then I realize that the people that have come onto the team are actually kind of stirring the boat and maybe there's a higher power that's looking at what we're accomplishing and saying, Hey, you're heading in the right direction that serves a greater purpose. And I'm almost like a, a passenger on the ship. hundred percent. I'm no longer the guy that's like, I'm the captain. Yeah. You know, we had, we had a UFC champ stop by our office today. I'm here in LA. He stopped by our office because he's like, I see you online. I want to make sure you're real before we maybe do some investments with you or whatever. So he stops by and he sends me a text. He's like, your company is unbelievable and i'm so grateful that he did not say you have accomplished something he was talking about my team and my people and everybody in every department he's like everybody was, i'm like i feel like i'm just as much a passenger on the ship as you are yeah that's well, really freaking cool well I, I love that and to me what you're saying to me as a leadership principle we must decrease so that our people can increase our our communities if we're if we're the kind of flashpoint of the head of them, we also become the weakness in that, right? If everything is us. And so to me, great community, there isn't a, a single head to it. That doesn't mean there isn't a leadership structure. You need functional leadership, but it's not a single person. It's one voice, united people, right? Which means yeah. there's typically when you see cultures like that, no doubt, if I, if I saw your team, they have a shared vision, right? Very clear about where they're going together as a team. They have shared values. They know what values they're using to get to that vision. 
and they probably have a functional way they deal with disagreement because disagreement is part of community, part of humanity, right? And so characteristically, when you look at healthy families, you look at healthy relationships, personal or professional, those, those three things consistently show up. Uh, and that's, I could see this in you. You show up, um, when I would describe as a lot of level four energy, which is the giving energy as a creator, you love to empower others is, is what I'm seeing. Like you're, you're optimized to empower others to potentiate, which means you probably attract a lot of people to you and you do need good people to protect you because when you're that kind of person, you're attracting everybody to you Yeah. and, and some are wolves, some are not. Yeah. I told somebody the other day, I said, even a perfect apple orchard, you'll find some worms <laughs> and um, you know, all these beautiful things we have going on and all this stuff, you'll find people that will sneak into the apples and sneak into what we're doing because you know, that's where scams happen. And that's where, when, when something's going really, really well, the wolves from the outside go, Ooh, how can we put on the sheep's clothing to sneak into that farm so yep. we can kill all the lamb? So we, you know, we're on hyper alert and our, we call them our ta talent acquisition team is even more and more judicial. I should say when we're, when they're coming through, you know, applications and all of those. It's so hard for us now to <coughs> hire people because now we have such a high standard and we're always on high alert because we've made mistakes. We've brought, we've allowed wolves in sheep clothing to come into our company and mess things up, steal things and recruit from within to go start their own thing oh, and yeah. whatever else and mess up the culture. It hasn't happened for a couple of years because we've done such a good job, but when, wherever you create amazing goodness, I'm sure you've dealt with it too on the way up. You're like, wow. I gave this opportunity. I did this. I did this. And this person stole from me and took from me and all these kind of things. You have to go through those things. It's a requirement. One of the things that I've learned in that, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it is, and it's somewhat hard to teach because I think I learned it mostly through experience is, but just to have good spidey sense is what I call it, where you just trust your gut. Like you get an intuition, like you'll have somebody who interviews very well. They say the right things, but just in your gut, you're like, something's off here. Yeah, and like I, think about the highest level producers and that, I'm not just talking about salespeople, but you know, operations people are producing amazing things. Think about them. Did you have a bad spidey sense about them and then you kept them on board and they magically worked out? Typically not. No, it's, it's like it's the opposite. It's the opposite. And you're like, I should have let you go. I should have never hired you because I felt a certain way about you. But you know, you have to go through those things too when you're just starting out. I mean, I'm walking through your office today I'm impressed. Your energy, your your culture in here is amazing, and it radiates through your people. But you didn't get there because somebody handed it to you. <laughs> quite, in fact, you went through hell a hundred times. You've had bad employees. You've probably had lawsuits. You've probably had all sorts of things in order to get here. And everybody else is like, "Oh, he it, it, it's easy for him." Yeah, he was born with a suit on. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you came out of the womb. You didn't wear pajamas. You wore a suit from day one. That's that, that was me. Yeah, yeah. described me perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this has been awesome. So I want to, we'll pivot here, um, kind of a hard transition. So tell me what you're doing now. So you're, you're the creative financing guy, right? That's, that's yeah. when, when I, I think when I, I see a lot of your content, when I ask people about you, oh, it's the creative financing guy. So, and you're in real estate. This is actually not a big pivot at all. When, yeah. jo when John filed bankruptcy on me, I had 250 construction employees that all needed a paycheck every Friday. <laughs> People in construction get paid Fridays. Oh, yeah. Not every other Friday. Yep. And <laughs> when John sends me this letter, my daughter's born. I still had 43 rentals in my portfolio. I call one of my buddies up, Jamil. You might see him on my content. He's my co-host on our TV show. 
I call them up. I go liquidate all 43 of my houses to buyers. I'll sell 70 cents on the dollar. I need half a million dollars immediately right now. I need to cover payroll. I need to do this, this, and this. And I need to go to a bunch of my clients in my construction world and say, I'm not going to finish your project. I'd never want to be a contractor ever again. The second I got this bankruptcy letter, the world, whatever it was, the universe, God, Buddha, whoever came and touched my brain. It was like, get out of construction business. So I was sitting there going, okay, I'm, I already understand real estate. I know how to do creative finance. I know how to do fix and flips, but now I'm in a position where I had no other option to build a portfolio because now I have no money. Mm -hmm. I have no credit. I've basically tapped everything out to get my contractors paid pay my customers back and go, I'm shutting down my construction company. Now I'm going full-time in real estate. And the only thing I could do was acquire real estate with no money down, low interest, no credit checks. And that's what I focused on. I focused entirely on that, just laser, laser focused, started making money immediately because I already had a little bit of momentum and I very quickly became the guy. And then I started hiring people. I go, man, I've got momentum and like nobody's dominating this niche. And because of out of necessity, because what John did to me, mm -hmm. I now have the greatest opportunity, I think, in real estate. And this was back in 2018. <clears throat> and I started hiring. I hired the guy that wrote the Dodd-Frank Act. I hired this guy, I oh, hired yeah. that guy, not full time, but as a consultant. And I would fly around the country and I'd hire these attorneys and I became the number one guy as far as seller finance subject to lease options, wraps, all of these magical terms that we could talk about, could not talk about, whatever you want to do. And focused on that for a number of years. And then um, I had this amazing other thing happen to me, or for me rather. This is probably 2019, about a year after I'd already started building momentum. 2019, I get a real estate lead from a seller who's in Denver, Colorado. And the house is in Phoenix. It's a second home for him and his wife. They vacation down there every single winter. The guy calls off one of our mailers and he says, I want to sell my property. We strike a price. His wife has fell ill, so he can't travel anymore. And so he's like, I just need to get rid of that property and just get out of the deal. I get a great deal on it. Obviously, the guy's motivated. And he says, perfect. Um, let me know when you can come by and sign in person. I go, okay, no problem. I, I won't be signing. I won't be signing in person. I'll send you a DocuSign. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm not doing a DocuSign. I told you I'm signing in person. If I do a deal with somebody, I'm looking them eyeball to eyeball. And I go, okay, then I'll send a mobile notary. I'll send a mobile notary. Easy goes, did I, am I doing business with the mobile notary or am I doing business with you? Damn, bro little intense much. <laughs> so I, this was like a Wednesday and the seller told me I had till Friday at 5 PM to meet him in person or, or okay. he was going to sell to somebody else. So this is like Wednesday. I go on a website. It was the only website at the time. They call themselves a community. Um, still to this day, they call themselves a community. I go on the website. It was the only place I could get help. And I go on there and I go, Hey, I've got this house. Here's the situation. I'm looking for a JV partner, a JV partner, joint venture partner, somebody that mm -hmm. will, be my partner on just this one deal. I need somebody that lives in Colorado to go up and sign this contract and be my partner on this one deal, which is legal. You don't have to be my full business partner, but you can have your LLC. I can have my LLC. We can do a joint deal. So I get ridiculed and criticized from people. Oh, why not do this? And why not do that? And I'm like, this isn't much freaking help. This is not a, what we call a community. This is what we call a forum. <laughs> okay. This is a forum, not a community. And uh, Thursday morning, I get a call from a guy named Sam 
Sam saw my post on the website. And he goes, I'll go help you. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Thank you, Sam. That's amazing. I was worried I wasn't going to get the deal done or I was going to have to fly up there. Thank you so much. So Sam goes, yeah, don't worry about the flight. Um, I'll go over there. I'll meet him tonight. Sam goes over, meets the seller. I never hear from Sam again. The seller calls me seven o'clock that night and he says, hey, um, Sam just left the property and he came and gave me a printout of your post on that forum saying that you're looking for a partner and he was trying to work around you and stab you in the back and do the deal, just me and him direct. Mm. <sighs> Bro, again, things happen for you, not to you. And I said, got it. Why are you calling me? Why didn't you just sign with him? And he says, because I'm a man of my word. And I told you that you had till Friday at 5 p.m. So I look on flights. I'm like, there's no flights. <laughs> How am I going to get there? And this is before I had the money to go get a private totally. jet and yep. spend 20 grand to get up there. I'm not going to do that. Yep. And so uh, I, I go to bed that night thinking, how am I going to figure this out? One o'clock in the morning, I wake up with pure anxiety. And I go, I'm going to go figure this out in spite of Sam. So thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. I jump in my Prius. I drive 16 hours up there. In your I, Prius. In my Prius. <laughs> I drive 16 hours up to this guy's house. It's not just Denver. It's two hours outside of Denver. Naturally. So I get to the guy's house. I sign the thing. As I'm leaving the, the property with this physical contract in my hand, this triumph, this trophy over Sam and the stupid forum that calls themselves a community, I see this truck coming down the dirt road and billow of like dust is coming behind this guy. I'm like, oh my gosh, this looks like somebody's going to come and kill me. Guy skids up in front of me, jumps out of his truck, comes over and puts his hand out to shake my hand. I go, oh my gosh, I thought you were going to beat me up. He goes, no, I'm the seller's son. And my dad told me how he almost, he was that Sam stabbed you in the back. I told my father to just sign with Sam. Because if you were going to be here, you would have already been here. And I didn't believe in you. And I told my father to sign with Sam. And my father told me he was a man of his word and that I should watch and that pace is going to come through. No and you way. drove up here in your freaking car and you made it happen. And he goes, I had to shake your hand. I was proven wrong. Wow. Okay. This is why this is so important to my journey. I have now 16 hours to drive home. And have just my thoughts and what had just happened to me over the last 48 hours all inside my brain just marinating. And I voice memoed myself for like, you know, three or four of those hours and took notes and just thought about what would a real estate community actually look mm. like? I have a deal. I have a thing. I'm, I, let's say I'm in Anaheim and I have a deal in Denver. I have people that are vetted, amazing go-givers with a culture, with a mission statement that will absolutely jump on it and help me. And... I didn't have the ability to, to build it. I didn't know how to build it. And then I met a guy about a year later, and this is how I met him. I get home and I go, I don't know how, to, how I'm going to build this, but I'm going to start grassroots bootstrapping it. Here's what I'm going to do. If I was going to start real estate all over, I wish I would have just been in somebody's car going on appointments with them and seeing their contractors and how they did this and running the numbers and, you know, how did this all happen? How did you get this deal? Reverse engineer, show me. So what I did is I said, this is a week after I get home from Denver after this deal gets done, I go on my Instagram stories and I said, I have like maybe 3,000 followers at this time. Like, you know, that's basically all the Mormons I knew. It was like 10 <laughs> families of Mormons, basically. So I go on Instagram stories and I said, hey, 
if anybody wants to learn what I do, come meet me at Circle K Saturday morning, six o'clock in the parking lot, and I'll take you around. I'll take you on appointments. I'll take you to where I get my deals. People call off my mailers. I'll go to their appointments. I'll sign contracts with them. I'll show you how I do a fix and flip, how I turn into a rental, how I do affordable. How, I'll, I'll show you everything. If I'm meeting with a private money lender, I'll show you how that meeting goes. If I'm meeting with my attorney, I'll whatever goes on Saturday, you're with me for 12 hours. First Saturday, six o'clock, circle K. I'm looking at my stories. I'm like, I said the six o'clock time, right? Nobody's there. Nobody showed up to my first time. So what I did, because I don't give up, I just went out in the field and I did my day like I normally do on my Saturdays, do my runs. And I would take selfies of myself with the car in the back, my Prius in the background. I go, the people in this car are getting so much value today. If you guys want to come and meet, be the people, you know, switch them out next Saturday. Come meet me at Circle K. Guess what? Next week, three people show up. How many people can my Prius fit? Three. Scott Garcia, Debbie Lou, and another guy named Tim. Tim. Debbie Lou, still now four or five years later, is one of my private money lenders. Scott Garcia is now worth $5 million. He was a high school wrestling coach. And he said, the thing, I read every book, I went to every seminar, I did everything possible, but it wasn't until you showed me what the business looked like yep. that you changed my life. Anyway, this got out of control. <clears throat> next Saturday, 63 people show up. <laughs> okay. The next Saturday, we've got two, 300 people well, okay, in my so, office. So what did you do with 63 people? You're not I, going to the field Cir with them. Circle K, Circle K <clears throat> came out into the parking lot. Like, what the hell is going on? Right. Is this a gang fight? <clears throat> right. They thought it was a fight. And I go, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. It's a real estate thing. They're like, it's six o'clock in the morning. What do you mean this is a real estate thing? We're calling the cops. <laughs> so I took everybody over to my office. We whiteboarded. I ordered a taco truck. We just hung out all day. And I was like, this is what community is. And I started doing it, started doing it, started get it got it start got started getting so big that my parking lot was five, six hundred people on a Saturday. And people were flying in from New York and somebody came in from Portugal. This is 2019, so four years ago. And somebody came to me. His name is Josiah. And Josiah's now my partner in four businesses. He a good, came strong to me. name. Yeah, great guy. Amazing. Strong, strong name, strong man. Amazing. He came to me. He goes, you should be a coach. And I go, I'll never be a coach. He goes, why? I go, because of this thing with Sam and this, this. And I have, I have this spite and this anger. He goes, dude, you could either let those things happen to you or let them happen for you. I was like, yep. Gosh, dang it. So he says, what do you want to do? What's your vision? I said, I want to build a community, not a mentorship. He goes, "That nobody's ever done it. I go, perfect. We'll be the first ones. And he said, I don't think it's possible. So for three months, we didn't talk. And then three months later, he came back to me. He goes, paint your vision. And it was cool. I Because of these big meetups we were doing, I had this custom-made whiteboard made 26 feet wide, which is as big as, of a wall. Oh, you're speaking my language. Oh, yeah. And we whiteboarded. I, I divided the whiteboard into one foot partitions yep. and I created a 26 foot phase <laughs> in my mind of this is where the community is going to go. This is what's going to happen. And this is what we're going to do. And he says, you're a lunatic and I love it. Let's do it. And so we, we launched a community and now, I mean, you got Eric, my, my camera guy who's here doing real estate deals with people in the community. He's not I doing deals it. with me. He's doing deals with people in the community. He's making more money in doing real estate deals than he is being my camera guy because of the people he met in my community, not because of me. And I said, if you can rely on a that's com community, that's community. When I'm the least, the yep. vision came from me, the culture comes from me. And of course, the responsibility of keeping that culture clean and, and 
you know, upheld. There's a stewardship to it, but there. you're not the bottleneck. I'm not the bottleneck. Yeah. And a lot of other people are like, oh, it's a mentorship and I'm the thing. And none of my students can become like, I want my students to do cooler things than me. Oh yeah. And I want them to then teach a class for 12 weeks. We call them sub two semesters. We'll do like a 12 week semester about that one students, you know, we'll create workbooks and homework all around that one student. So the student becomes the professor. And I'm like, that's a freaking community. So like right now, the reason I'm in LA is we are doing the largest real estate charity that's ever been done. All 50 states, about 20,000 of my community members are all going out and working with a, a charity called Family Promise to get, you know, single moms and, and their kids off the streets by doing donations. And it's our charity of choice and it ties into real estate. It's a whole long story I don't need to go into, but that came from, that all became, that all came from John filing bankruptcy on me, me having no choice but to go out and do it. Then some guy trying to screw me over on a deal. And instead of being a bitch about it, I said, I'm going to do something about this and I'm going to change the world around me. I'm not going to let, I'm not going to let this happen to me. I'm going to go get it done. And, um, here we are now. Now we're just, uh, we got the freaking, I, in my opinion, the only community in real estate. Amazing. The father, uh, it's old saying the father of innovation is necessity. Sometimes it's only when we look back do we see how all the, the, the things connect together. Right. I didn't see how it all connected until later, but uh, you know, John filing bankruptcy on me needed to happen. Sam screwing me over needed to happen. All of these bad things needed to happen. So, you know, I'm sure you've seen the Jocko Willick thing. He says, Oh yeah, this thing happened or this thing having his answer to everything is good. Oh, we didn't, we didn't land the contract. Good. We have time to get better. Good. So I just, you know, personal development is one of the things that you are so good at is getting people to, act. I'm not a personal development person. I learned from people like you who are about personal development. And somebody told me four or five years ago when I was going through most of my journey, they said, your personal income will never outgrow your personal development. Yep. And I, that hit me so freaking hard. I was 100%. like, wow, 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 wow. But when I was in phase one, Sebastian, I would have never heard those words. No, usually you won't because you're solving for everything outside of yourself. Which is crazy, right? Yeah. So like you look at people in phase one, I think I got punched in the face enough that I got punched into phase number two. I, it, so many bad things happened to me. <laughs> I got punched out of phase one. So I look at people in phase one and I'm like, how can a Sebastian get somebody out of phase one? Is yep. that the hardest thing to do? Is it possible for everybody? And it, it, I, there's an old saying, those who are awake do not judge those who are asleep. So my first book uh, will be out in 2024. And it's, Your first book? Yeah. How yeah. dare this man not have written know, 10 books already? Know. You know what I'm saying? I'm working on it. I'm working on it. But the whole first book is on self-awareness. Um, you know, there's two types of self-awareness. It's 96% of the population believes they're self-aware. And 85% of the population is not self-aware. 85%, which is they're, they're hanging out in the to me uh, category. The key is for those who are truly awake to create an atmosphere to potentiate their awakening, but you can't force it on anyone, right? In fact, very often when we try to force it, they just bury themselves further, right? Because it, it, what you resist persists, what you're constantly pushing into will it's continue. like waking up a three-year-old sleeping child in the middle of their sleep. They just get pissed off and grumpier and then they won't <laughs> go right back to sleep. Just like that, <laughs> right. That's interesting. Yeah, that is true. And then the last thing somebody in phase one wants to hear is you have a mindset problem. Yeah, or it's your fault. It anything your that fault. makes it sound, anything that implies in any possible way that it's their fault, they're not for. Yeah, it, it's scary. I was just writing on my Instagram stories today, just thinking about 
how I think that the homelessness issue is going to be worse. I think the affordability crisis is going to get worse. Everything's going to get worse because life is actually getting easier. Yep. And because people are going through way, way less trials and tribulations, they're going through way less nowadays. It's like the world has been built around convenience. You don't even have to go out and get your own food, groceries, this, that, and the other. Like even my wife, groceries show up at her house. I'm like, wait, I go to Walmart. I go to Target. I go to Costco. Like, why are we doing this? She goes, oh, you don't have to do that. Nobody does that anymore. I'm like, okay, I got that. Then the next convenience, then the next convenience. I'm like, holy crap, people who literally could just live inside their house and never do anything. And the worlds get smaller and smaller and smaller. We worship at the altar of nowism. Everything is about now, 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 now. And it's making our world smaller and smaller and smaller, which eventually uh, is going to correct itself in, in a probably very how? painful way. How? So this, have you read the fourth turning, the book about? Oh, yeah. Okay, you so. how? I've just started reading it. It's a tome. Generations is their first book, which is fantastic. Okay, so that's and the book I should probably go back and well, read. Well, I mean, he's it's it, he goes back to the 1600s, and it's, so it's I think he goes all the way back to the um, to the Danes to Denmark with the um, the tulips, and so he's like, oh my god, the that's tulip such economy. a great story. Right, so, but, so he goes all the way back, and he shows these generations as they turn over, and the fourth turning right is is where we're at. Gen Z is the fourth generation in this cycle. And so it's a fantastic book. They're both fantastic. Fourth Turning is probably a little bit more digestible uh, and more applicable, I guess. The Generations is just a, it's a tome, but it's super interesting if you love history. What's interesting about it is that, um, so I was, I didn't know about the book until I was with Tony Robbins and Dean at like a retreat. There were six of us and we're all hanging around and- Were you in Fiji? No, we didn't, it was like at Tony's house in uh, Palm Beach, which was cool. Or- West Palm over it in that area. I yep. did not go to the Fiji thing. I, I was at his house with Dean, Jim Quick, Russell Brunson, myself. That's a, good a, company. A, oh my god, sounds gosh. awesome. It was so great and very small group of people. And Tony started talking about this book, and he said, "There's nothing you can do to stop it. There's nothing you can do, do to stop it because this is what's happened over and over and over and over in history." And I'm like, "Okay, but Tony, how do you know this?" He says, "Read the book, The Fourth Turning." Yep. And now you're bringing up generations. And I look at that and go, so there's nothing we can do to stop this from happening. It's going to happen. Prevent it, no, but knowing what's going to happen can help. Help us and our communities. But then there's other people that are just going to be victim to it happening to them. Yes. And we're essentially going to ride the wave because we understand what's going to happen. Yes. How do you think things are going to change in the next 50 years, 60 years? Do you think there's going to be an implosion? Do you think universal basic income, like those types of things? Yeah, I think think UBI, uh, I would have said 20 years years ago, if you would ask me about this, I would have just principally been against UBI. Mm. The world we're creating, I don't see how we get out of it. I think UBI is going to become a thing because we're going to have within probably a generation or two AI and robotics doing most jobs. Yeah. yeah. So there, there won't be a reason to work. I mean, have you stood in line at TSA recently? Oh my God. Today <laughs> I'm standing there. 16 minutes was a long time for high achievers, like uh-huh. standing somewhere in one place for 16 trying minutes. to get out of SeaTac right now with even anyway. nightmare. Yeah. So I'm standing there. I go robots are going to take this over in three years. If, I mean, maybe the government will take it over. And then also in my business, what are we doing in real estate? What will real estate look like in 20 or 30 years? Here's what it will look like. Smart. Sh- shared housing. Yep. Co-living. Yep. People are going to be condensing five households in a four-bed, three-bath house because affordability is going to go way down, even worse than it is today. It's hard to believe. Hard to believe. But I agree. Most people that we talk to 
cannot afford $1,000 rent plus utilities, plus, plus, plus insurance, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And so what's happening is real, the real estate world is seeing this whole entire wave of, oh my gosh, I can make a lot more money by taking my four bed, three bath rental that I could rent for $2,300, maybe not in California, maybe that's $4,000, but in Phoenix, Arizona, $2,300, I could go and divide that up into six different families. And because it's affordability is a protected class, people that are, are down and out, the HOAs can't say anything about it, whatever else. Now we're starting to see it, real estate investors in our community starting to go into these houses saying, I'm going to help families and I'm going to make a lot more money because now this one house that makes me $500 a month in cash flow off of a regular rental, I can make $2,000 a month off of co-living. And I look at it, I go, man, it's, we're helping solve a problem that we did not create, but it is seeing the wave of what's happening. And I'm, gonna, I'm saying in 20 years, a lot of the stuff that's happening and, and the way the real estate world is, is going to be focused on people that can't, just can't afford anything. Have you seen the movie Ready Player One? Oh, yeah. The stacks, right? The mobile home stacks. It's a, a dystopian. Now, even they weren't even mobile homes. They were, in some cases, like trailers. Tra or, um, uh, yeah. Um, like storage boxes. Yeah. Uh, what, what am I, what's the word I'm looking container. for? Container. Container. Yeah. yeah. So I people were DMing me this morning off my Instagram stories. They're like, yeah, container home neighborhoods and this, that, and the other. I'm like, this is the beginning of Ready Player One. 20 years down a, the road. A dystopian kind of future that potentially will present itself. And I think... I think uh, Aristotle gets credit for saying that the art and history of today is the future of tomorrow. Mm. What we're able to visually see is it's everything is created twice, right? It's created first here and then in the real world, the unmanifest becoming manifest. So uh, Ready Player One is a fantastic book and I thought they did a pretty good job with the movie, but I don't think, I don't have a negative view of the world. I do think we're going to go through a lot of change and I think we are in transition in a time in history that is fairly unique. I think this has happened probably two or three times uh, in human history that we've been in this cycle. So we have, if you've read, it, it's really interesting if you lay Ray Dalio's book over the top of the fourth turning Ooh, because he's using the financial model and in economics to demonstrate a very similar point. So you have short-term debt cycles stacking on top of long-term debt cycles. So it coincides with these fourth turnings. And so I think you get a, I'll say wholer picture, more complete picture when you overlay the two together. I would say potentially they're saying the same thing, but from different lenses. Yeah. When you look at this, I think we're going to go through some pretty massive radical change. Everything in our system right now, and I, and I, I don't usually try to use global statements, but I think it's pretty accurate. All of the major institutions are being challenged all at the same time, right? Um, government is being challenged. We've always had intensity, right? And bipartisan system, but it's on a different level right now, right. right? There's more division than there has been in a very long time between the parties. And there's Banking. more distrust in government, banking, education, uh, education, marriage, religion, all of them are up for grabs. And it can seem really, really scary if you don't see what's happening, because I look at it like <clears throat> kind of a strange analogy, but like we're molting. And when you're in the mm, process of molting, yeah. it looks very scary. Um, because you're very vulnerable in that process. We will come back to and solidify a bunch of these institutions. Some of them may come back and we will be reminded of why they were important in their original state. Yeah. And we'll come back to, oh, that's why this is important. That's why it's important to do it this I way. Think this, I, maybe you're saying <coughs> this as well as in some of our specific communities, people are already seeing that, right? People are saying, I see the change that's happening in, in education. I see the change that's happening in government. 
we need to bolster our communities together and focus on private schools or, you know, whatever it may be, get our kids out of the school system. Um, a lot, so the exodus from the public school system is massive. It's massive. When I was a kid, homeschooling you was were and a I, nerd, bro. right? And I homeschooled. I, I went, I went to high school my freshman year and I was like, this is a social organism that needs to be fed on a daily basis. Yeah. And I don't want to feed it. I homeschooled myself my sophomore year. And then I, I graduated, um, did, um, I got my two year degree, my junior and senior year. So I got my associates coming out of high school. And at that time, homeschooling was still, you were a nerd, right? Yeah, you it were was a nerd. Like, and now it's like the thing. It's freaking cool. And yeah, and it, it makes sense because our these systems are failing. They're no longer working and they need massive overhaul and massive update. But one of the, to me, one of the most exciting things about this period is those who are not waiting for the government to figure it out. Right. There is no time in history in which the government is the one that solves these problems. It's always the people. And so I'm always, when I, it laughs, it, I mean. What an interesting statement. There's, it, it just go look, like I think we, somewhere along the way, we thought history wasn't cool and we stopped studying history. And when I, especially when I talk to, you know, I think somebody in their 20s is usually a kid and they're like, they just, oh, history is boring. I didn't uh, like history. No. But the older you get, the more you, you appreciate it. You no, know, there's, there's themes and patterns and, and, and humans are, well, human. And they continue to make the same mistakes over and over again until they learn from them. So uh, I'm really excited for those who are looking to solve problems instead of looking to other people to solve these problems. Right. That's where the real change is going to happen. But I'm, I'm actually very hopeful uh, and very optimistic, I, I'm, which I isn't so me too. saying that I don't think there isn't likely going to be a lot of disruption and pain. There will be. But I think it's going to lead to a better world and a better future. And some of it will be we'll come back to things and realize where they were important. And some things we will probably disband for good. Agree with all of that. And, and so UBI to me, I'm less, I wasn't a big fan of UBI. I'm coming around on it because fundamentally in my belief system, if we're doing this right, we should create a better world for the next generation. We can argue whether that's been done, but if you take it over, there's, I think Steven Pinker's book, he pointed this out and I would agree. Again, if you study history, it's harder to point to a time in history that's better than it is now, right? Objectively for more people, not just the United States. I'm sure you could pick particular communities and go, well, it's not for them. In general, there's never been a better time alive. I think I read a stat that I've, I've looked up a few times now and, and cannot refute, but it still blows my mind that you are statistically more likely to die of obesity today than you are um, starvation, right? Which is why, wow. which isn't to say that we still don't have problems with food scarcity for, for particular groups of person, but it's not, it's not a lack of resources. It's a lack of, um, logistics, right? Like we have plenty of food for everyone. We're right. just not very good at distribution for a number of reasons. And some of them are sickening. Um, and so and if you start looking at these stats, it's like, well, we're living in an amazing time relative to our history, right? And it, in some cases, creates more problems and weakness, and then everything's perspective. So there, like, I'm, I'm listening to a generation. I'm on TikTok, which I was really hesitant to get on, but Frank and uh, some of my team convinced job, me. No, Frank. you, you got to be on. You got to be on TikTok. So I get on TikTok, and it's it's definitely, as I'm sure you know, it's a, it's a. I have a wide variety of people who follow me on there. To be fair, in in a wide demographic, but it's predominantly aged down. It's fascinating to hear the their take on the world. And, and, and there's a lot of people, a lot relative to the people I'm talking to that are convinced that this was, this is a worse time to be alive oh my than the greatest generation as Tom Brokaw called them, which was the last of the flapper generation, which was according to Neil Howe, the last fourth turning, mm -hmm. right? In which they dealt with the Spanish influenza, world war one, 
the Depression and World War II. And I'm like, how could you be, like, like how could you genuinely believe that? It's just wild to me. Well, it's those who do not understand history are fated to repeat yeah, it. I, w- I was listening this morning. I was li- reading some Marcus Aurelius stuff and researching a bunch of his stuff the last couple of months and finding out that oh, he yeah. had seven children and only one of them ended up actually surviving long enough into adulthood. He ended up being the turd of the bunch and taking over the, the kingdom and ruining loosely, everything. Gladiator is loosely, uh, yes. loosely it, based on and that. They and say, they say that Joaquin Phoenix was actually did not do a, a, the guy justice with how bad of a human being he was. And he did such a great job playing that role that he forever I could not stand Joaquin Phoenix because of how he played oh, of that course, role. Of course. Uh, it was one of my favorite movies. But you look up, at that, and like back then you'd have to have seven kids just so you could have one that could make it into adulthood that you could now have an heir. You were to playing the literally a law of averages. Right. That's yeah. it. And now it's, it's, you know, you look at survival of the fittest is no longer a thing. It is for better or for worse. For better or for worse. <laughs> and that's, you know, I don't want to attack that, but there is no sur- there is no such thing as survival of the fittest. So everybody has the ability to procreate, whether they should or they shouldn't be procreating. And so you look back in the, the physical education back in 1960s, everybody's ripped and shredded. Shredded. Pull, and doing, doing, 30, doing stuff pull-ups. that they wouldn't even do now because of liability I'm reasons. I'm like, this looks like a movie. This is right. not even real. Yeah. It, it's the, the way things have changed. Again, the fourth turning is a great book because it gives you a hint as what is what is coming, and that it is coming. It's inevitable, mm-hmm. and you can prepare for it. I think going back into what you were talking about with community, I think community is one of the greatest ways that you can prepare for it. Be around people that are like-minded, people that are forward-thinking, people that are going to reinvent certain things. Like, I have a new friend, A.G. Osborne, and his wife Tessa that created a private school that's all about business entrepreneurship. Love it. And what they do is cool, cool little things like the kids come in. The kids have jobs they have to do every day that they earn their monthly stipend or their paycheck, their salary. And then they have to rent their desk. They have a, I'm sorry, they have a mortgage on their desk. If they fall behind on their mortgage payments on their desk, their classmates can buy it out of auction and then lease it back. Basically letting letting them be landlords over each other. Life lessons being employed very early. Oh my gosh, it's like all of those things that I'm like, this is what is happening is people are reinventing through the molting and it's not a lot of people, but it's small little groups of people are figuring out what you just said. The government it never in history has ever figured it out. It's not the answer. It's not but the answer. The U S government and, it, and I read the, and I, anybody who hasn't read it, I highly recommend it. I not every year, but most years on the 4th of July, one of, and one of my kind of traditions is to read George Washington's farewell address. Uh, and it is an, it, it's prophetic. I don't know how else to say it. He saw ahead of time our challenges, what we would go through as a country, and what we would need to do to navigate that. Um, and we're living it. We're living it. And I'm again, I'm very hopeful. I'm, I'm very optimistic for the future. We're just going through a tough time. But it's it, the government was designed to get out of the way. The U.S. government originally was designed to get out of the way to allow free enterprise and the human to show up and potentiate to be the best them. Right. Somewhere along the way, we began to, over time, more and more, turn to the government to be the answer. And it just historically has never been the answer. Did That's you see what Vivek Ramaswamy said the other day on Twitter? No, he but said, I like him. He's, fa- he's, he's, he's very smart. He's a smart dude. He says, day one in the Oval Office, I'm going to take random... He says, I'm going to fire everybody in the federal government that has an odd ending to their social security number. <laughs> and here's what's going to happen. Nothing. That we it's over bloated, <laughs> da da da, and I'm like wow. And then somebody 
came comes back and says, I actually disagree with it. I feel like you should probably let go of 90% of the federal government and still nothing would happen. Now, I don't agree with that, but it is interesting. There's a point that he's making, it's right? A big Obviously, point. yeah. Right. And th that statement of never before has the government figured out what's going on is a powerful statement. Yeah. Yeah. I think we could at least start with term limits. Yeah. That might, that might be useful. <laughs> yeah. But, well, this has been awesome. I've enjoyed yeah. this. I've enjoyed this conversation. I think we could probably talk for hours more, and I hope we do. I'd love yeah, to continue this um, on, a, on another podcast and have you come back. Thank you. Um, thank you. I appreciate is, you. This is awesome, and just getting to know you a bit. The next time um, I do the podcast, we got to be doing this in... Um, the Pacific Northwest. The Squim. Thank you, Molly. We will do it up there. Squim. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going back to my roots. I've been homesteading. we got our chickens. We're going to get cows next year. What kind of cows? Are you going to get the Scottish Highland cows, the emo cows? <laughs> And I, we're, we're still deciding, but we want to get a couple of milk cows. The problem with dairy cows is they, they, they have to be milked mm. constantly. You can't not milk them. Well, you have a lot of team members here, brother. Yeah, we do. We do. Somebody, so somebody on it this It might floor, be on their task list. Somebody would be like, I would love to do that. <laughs> Send me out there to squim. I'll set up the headquarters and I'll be the official cow fresh, milker. Fresh butter, but we're getting bees. We got our orchard. Oh, that's, that's the first thing I'm doing this summer. <laughs> I'm debating on Italian bees or, or the Western bee. And uh, that's a hundred percent what we're doing. Hundred percent, bro. I love it. I'm gonna be. Text well, we gotta. We gotta talk more about you this. And go, hey, listen, what's going on with my bees? Yeah, yeah. You, you get your orchard going. You get your your garden going. Yeah. Get like there are skills, there are skills that are that are being lost, mm -hmm. and if we don't revive them, that could be trouble. Like it simple it, it things. It is interesting to see what's going on with people of means are going back to the old ways and simpler lives. Showing your children the things that the way that we grew up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I grew up in cow patties and, and lighting bags of shit on fire on people's doorsteps. Cow, like, that oh, I, got a fun, I got a funny story about that, but yes. Cow yeah. tipping and all the things, right? We, yep. I grew up that way, and a good time with your friends was driving up the canyon, starting a fire, and hanging out with your buddies. 100%. Right next to the river. Now it's, you know, digital this and digital that, iPads in their face. And I'm, I'm not against it entirely, but how much excess it, it has um, caused. So for us, we're, we go up there, we'll go up to Montana four, maybe five months a year. Everything gets turned off. The kids are raising yeah. the cattle. The kids are yeah. doing the things. The kids are driving the tractor. The kids are, you know, doing the bees and all the things and just getting back to basics. Yeah. So you, you're, I mean, I'm guessing just based on our conversation, it sounds like you're an Xennial, which is that, you know, uh, Gen X millennial hybrid. And so am I. Yeah. So it's like we remember a simpler world, but we grew up in the time of the internet and screens. Yep. I, um, when I was a senior in high school, I got a cell phone. So like I was there. Me too. And, and I got a Hotmail account, which I still have. I don't use it for anything, but I still have it. Thank goodness that I missed the cell phone stuff in high school. <laughs> I There was no trouble. There's no issues. You just hung out. Like the, th the thing that we would do is we, we'd go to the gas station and just hang out. Or the grocery store. I, I, I went back to the town I grew up, like I was telling you, I moved back there. And there's still people, it's like they still do that. They right. still hang out in the, the parking lot. I'm like, what do you do? Just... And they're like, well, we did that as kids. I don't yeah. know why, but you, you find chat. a parking lot and just to hang out. Each other. You learn how to converse. You learn how to do things and have fun and be creative and go, what are we doing tonight? Right. What kind of trouble are we going to get into? We're going to get into. And yeah. it was like the worst thing we did were like throw pumpkins and water balloons. It was like, and we thought or we were eggs. devils or eggs or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, rem I remember those simpler times. And now uh, here's a good example. And maybe we can wrap it up with this, this thought. But the, the other day, my daughter Corbin turns five. We spend $5,000 on a birthday party for a five-year-old. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. some stupid stuff. 
Okay. But this is what you do when you have money, apparently. So, yep. you know, you have people that now you live in a fancier neighborhood. You, your kid goes to dance class with other fancy families and they're driving the white Yukons and the this and the that. And you kind of get sucked into that without even knowing it. Right. Keeping Osmosis. up with the Joneses without even realizing it. Without even realizing. Yeah. Oh, that's what we're supposed to do. And so we have 43 girls come over to my Jesus. Oh, it's a lot. 43. We have this big Barbie party, balloons everywhere and all the things. Everybody gets a gift basket. I'm like, damn, like all my parents did was a sheet cake and a couple of pizzas. <laughs> and I asked Corbin. <laughs> she says, I go, man, did you have a great time? She goes, oh, it was so fun. It was so great. Thank you, dad. It was so great. And you, she's super grateful. A couple of weeks later, I come home. My wife is sitting on the floor in the living room. And there's this big box, right? Some some chair came in this big box. And I'm like, where, where are the girls? Where's Corbin? Where's Monday? And my wife goes, shh, shh. She's pointing at the box. Aww. And I come over and I open up the box. Ah! And they're laying down in the box, covered in markers all over their face, <laughs> everything all over. And then the inside is colored with rainbows and butterflies and all these things. And I'm looking at this box that's basically trash. Yep. And I realized how much happier Monday and Corbin both were. And I look at this and I, my wife and I both look at each other in this moment and she goes, we shouldn't have done the birthday party. This is all these kids need to be happy. And this is actually a, a, a deeper connection for, you know, bonding with her sibling, more simple, stop trying to make everything extravagant, go back to basics. And we just can't wait to spend our summers up in Montana. Um, you know, we do the things in Arizona in the, in the winters and all the things we do all of those things, but it's a lot more class and structure and this that, and the other. Whereas when we go up there and we're homesteading, we wake up in the morning, we're just taking care of the animals and we're doing life lessons all day long. So who takes care of the animals when you're not, I have so many, we could go on forever cause I have so many more questions. A caretaker. So the property is, uh, we've, we bought a property that has a 3,500 square foot barn that w is a wedding venue. And yep. so I have somebody taking care of that. And so the, the property is taken care of when I'm not there. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to solve for now. Although we moved originally thinking we'd split time in Orange County. And granted, we've only been up there for 90 days, but nobody's interested in coming back. Maybe when the rain gets crazy, they'll start. But they're like, no, we're Could you turn your good. property into like a event? Uh, we are. Event we, we're going to. So the Lavender Festival is a very big deal where I grew up. It's the lavender capital of the United States. Wow. We're going to get involved in the Lavender Festival. And we're going to put, we have a 100-year-old barn on the front of the property wow. that I'm going to rehab, turn it into a venue space. So all of that. But I still travel and I'm not going to stop traveling. I have a. Get know, a caretaker. You, yeah. So we just had a, we had a found, found a person, in our local church up there. Right. So that's, that's somewhat retired and they have animals like a couple blocks away. And so they just come over to the property every day, three, four hours a day and they take care of the things and they make sure that things are set up and the money from the venue pays their salary. Brilliant. And so I, I can be hands off and I can yep. get my business in Arizona. Super smart. And then we fl we'll fly up for Thanksgiving and Christmases and do, you know, the more festive, simpler version of it up there at the property. And then the summers, we just, I mean, it's too freaking hot. It's 123 degrees in Phoenix, Arizona. So yeah, I don't know how people deal with that. It's bad. We, we, what I you have do friends that just absolutely love living there. And I, when I go see them in the summer, I'm like, no, it's how? They're, they're like, well, we're indoors all day. I'm like, we I want to be outdoors. Just comes to Anaheim. Everybody yeah. in Phoenix comes to Anaheim <laughs> in the freaking summertime. <laughs> well, I want to mention another point. I know we got to stop here, but you said something that is really important. Kids don't need nearly as much as we think they do to feel fulfilled and happy. And sometimes we end up projecting see this a lot with, with wealthy people, we project our lack of childhood on our children to try to make up that delta that was never there in the first place. No. And they don't need all that, right? They're, they're children, there's childlike innocence, there's a simplicity to connection and community. They don't need all those things. And very often we impose that on them and it makes them think they do 
because we thought they did. Right. Uh, and so I think a return to a simpler life is one of the things that we're going to come back to as we kind of get through this molting phase is we'll begin to value things that we lost through this time of mass affluence. Right. So Pace, it's been awesome having you Thank on you. the show. This was awesome. Uh, Shout out to the team. Yeah. Boom. Appreciate you guys.